Good morning, Renaissance. Hello, I am a volunteer here, and we will be reading um, the scripture this morning, Romans chapter 8, verses 11 through 13. You can follow along in your Bible or on either side of the stage on the screens. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. The word of the Lord. What's going on, everybody? My name is Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here at Renaissance. Really grateful to be with you guys on this Church and Chill Sunday. Uh, in our house, we really don't check the mail, um, unless I know I have an Amazon package coming in. Uh, there's really no need to check it, because it usually only falls into one of two categories. Uh, either it's a bill, which I don't want, or it's a wedding invitation, which I may or may not want, depending on who it is that's getting married. Uh, one day, my wife was checking the mail, and her face sunk. And I knew immediately that either this is an unexpected bill or this is an invitation for somebody's wedding that she really doesn't want to go to. Uh, and unfortunately for us, it was a bill from your boy, Uncle Sam, tapping our pockets uh, from the IRS, uh, something small that we had done in 2014. They came back and said, no, 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 you still owe us uh, something. As soon as we got that letter from the IRS, uh, it was almost like somebody took the air out of the room. We had been having a great day up to that point, but the feeling of debt kind of just jumps on your shoulders and it starts to bring up some pretty negative emotions inside of your life. Uh, debt is something that most Americans are very familiar with. Uh, the average household has credit card debt, some student loans, right? No Sally Mae formed against me shall prosper. <laughs> Here's what debt does into your life. It limits your choices of what you can and cannot do. As soon as I realized that what we were in fact dealing with was an IRS bill, I knew that immediately our life would have to change and shift to meet this newfound obligation that we have because of our debt. Debt always creates obligations. Now, in life, in America, and in all of our lives, debt could be financial, but in a lot of ways, it could also be relational, where there's an obligation to someone based on what they have done for you in your life. And these obligations are extremely powerful, even though nobody has signed a contract or there's been no bill submitted. Uh, I saw this firsthand with my father and my grandmother. Uh, my dad did not grow up with a silver spoon in his mouth. Uh, he grew up with no spoon in the tenement apartments in the east side of Buffalo. He wasn't poor, he was po. So poor, you can't even afford the last two letters of the word. Uh, nobody in his family before him had even graduated middle school. My grandmother was a sharecropper when she was young. Uh, they left during the black migration uh, from Memphis to hopefully greener pastures, uh, no pun intended, in the Northeast. And they came to Buffalo hoping that they would have more opportunities but more specifically, she wanted her baby boy to have a life and a future. My grandmother spent her entire life investing in my father's life. 
She literally cleaned up homes on her hands and knees to provide for my father. Uh, Backbreaking labor, and she would work hours and hours and hours a day, no health care, no paid sick leave. She worked through sickness, through illness, all hoping and praying that my father would not have to have the same future that she did. Every time the church is open, she made sure my father was in it, and she prayed for that man hard. Uh, one of the things I think about most with my grandmother is her, her prayer life and how earnestly she would pray and how much she expected of God to open up doors because of what she was hoping for God to do in my dad's life. And that, my dad, that little poor black boy from Buffalo went on to middle school and high school and college and law school, and he went on to open up his own law firm. And uh, his entire life was changed because of the investment that his mother had put in him. Now, who do you think my father never forgot about in every level of success that he had attained? What kind of son would he have been if one day he makes it and he's living high on the hog, got a Mercedes Benz, and he just completely dismisses his mother and just checks in with her on Christmas and on her birthday? He would be a terrible son. Most of us know that a life poured out so diligently into his requires that there's some obligation paid back toward that person. And my father happily did that. Uh, Up until the day my grandmother passed away, my father poured his life back into hers. And anything she wanted that uh, that he could provide, he provided. He lived his life out of gratitude, but also a sense of obligation. Now, this concept is really important because as we look at today's scripture, the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter in Romans 8, speaks in the concept of debt and obligation, and that a Christian is one who lives his or her life out of this gratitude and obligation of what Jesus has done for them. Paul says it like this in Romans 8 and 11, um, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. So then, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh, because if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Paul is talking about a profound truth of what, based on what God has done in your life, if you have placed your faith in Christ, based on what God has given us in his son Christ, uh, you and I now live under obligation, but this obligation is not to our flesh. Now, last week, Lester mentioned uh, the definition of what flesh means, and uh, many times when you hear the word flesh, the first thing you think about is sex or inappropriate physical relationships. Uh, But when the scripture talks about flesh here, it's a much bigger category than just that. Uh, The word flesh here means um, uh, our human nature. It's our appetites, our thinking, and our feeling. So here's what Paul is saying. You and I live as people under an obligation, and that obligation should change the way we live our lives. It should change every single thing about us. Actually, this debt and this obligation, we should reorient our life to meet this obligation. But this obligation is not to your desires. It's not to your appetites. It's not to your thinking. It's not to your emotions about what you think should happen. You and I live under the obligation of, based on what God has done for us, to live for God. And this scripture starts with a a pretty big contrast. And the, the, the Christian's obligation is to live out the righteousness that Jesus Christ has given 
to us. If it's true that God came to the world in Christ and lived to show us the way, died on the cross for our sins, and now gives us life in the Spirit, what kind of children would we be to live and only give lip service to God? I often read through the New Testament accounts of Jesus in his last days to see the humanity and the agony of Jesus' life and what was the price tag for my salvation. And I see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane sweating blood and the agony of his life and experienced separation from God. And if Jesus has freely given me that, what kind of son would I be to not live with a sense of wonder and a sense of gratitude and a sense of obligation towards God? So that my enemies would be God's enemies, and God's enemies would be my enemies. Uh, most recently, the last couple of months, uh, I had, I don't know if anybody has ever experienced this, but you've had the, uh, the unraveling of a friendship that you might have had for a long time. Uh, I have a friend that I've known for over 20 years, and um, out of the blue a couple of months ago, he started, I don't know, feeling himself and started talking real greasy about my older brother. And just because of the nature of me and my older brother, if you're not good with him, you're not good with me. That friendship, although it had been 20 years, I, it's, it's happily dissolved because in order for you and I to be really good, you have to be good with my friend. My friends, you have to be good with my friends and my enemies have to be your enemies. Scripture tells us in 1 Peter 2 and 11 to abstain from the fleshly lusts, which what? They war against your soul. And if you and I are to live in gratitude and obligation towards God, that means we would stand on the side with God and say, whatever is his enemy is my enemy. Now, before we get too far ahead of ourselves, uh, I want to acknowledge that when we say this word obligation, depending on how you think upstairs, that word might mean something to you that I don't want it to mean. Now, I'm going to talk about this in two big categories, and you may fall in one or the other or depending on the day, you might fall in both. Um, but there's a couple of things that I do not want you to walk away thinking obligation means. Now, if you lean towards something called moralism, uh, moralism basically is this. Moralism is the belief that my faith plus all of my good works makes me right with God. So moralism is the belief that my faith in Jesus and all that Jesus has done and add on all of my great performance, add on all of the ways I meet the obligations, then that equals uh, a right standing with God. And if you lean towards moralism, once we started talking about obligation, you were like, yes, about time Jordan started preaching the truth up in here. You know what I'm saying? Tell them, Jordan, tell them what they need to do. Tell them what they need to do. Moralism is not the gospel. Moralism is not the gospel. Moralism uh, would make you feel that you have a hand to play in your salvation. And as ridiculous as it would be for my son to claim that he had a hand in him being born, that's how much you and I have a right to claim that you and I uh, are good with God based off of all the good things we do. Now, here's the thing about moralists. You could be liberal or conservative, but you all basically believe the same thing. Uh, more conservative uh, moralists tend to believe that it's all about personal ethics, that God is really concerned about how I spend my money, how I use my body, how I do this, how I do this, what I read, and all these different things. And if I do a good job with that, then God will accept me. Come on in. The more liberal uh, moralists tend to believe that it's all about social ethics. So if I treat the poor correctly, if I have the right immigration policies, if I look at the world the right way socially, then God 
accepts me. And even though these two groups would hate to be lumped together, you're basically believing the same thing, that God cares about this one thing, I'm doing a good job of it, so God accepts me. Here's what happens in moralism. You create two big categories of us and them, who's in and who's out, and you've based uh, God's love and care for people based on how well they're doing. Here's the deal. All throughout the Gospels, Jesus completely takes that table and flips it upside down. There's an account where Jesus calls one of his disciples, a man named Levi. Levi was doing the most hated profession. He was collecting taxes. Uh, he was a Jewish man who was stealing from Jewish people to give to the Roman Empire to further oppress Ju Jewish people. Jesus walks up to Levi while he's collecting taxes and says, Matthew, Levi, come, follow me. Moralists were stunned and angry and shocked and completely uh, um, surprised that Jesus would do such a thing. Jesus does that to show us the reaches of grace. There is no limit that you and I could put on grace. Where sin does abound, grace, does, grace abounds much more. Now, if you are a moralist, uh, you would uh, tend to struggle with this concept of uh, living out of gratitude, but rather you'd be feeling like you had to earn it. Um, a couple months ago in our series on Ephesians, we looked at this one scripture that if you struggle with moralism like me, this is kind of where I tend to land in it. Um, if you struggle with moralism, uh, this scripture has been gold for me time after time. It says, for you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. This is not from yourselves. Paul goes to great lengths to say, let me just be really, really clear with you. This is not from yourselves, so no one can boast. Uh, Tim Keller once made the comment that in order for us to, um, uh, he, he, Tim Keller says like this, you cannot add to Christ without inevitably subtracting from Christ. You cannot add anything to Jesus without inevitably subtracting from Jesus. And the best way I know to explain this is this. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, my wife and I celebrated five years uh, of being married. Uh, yes, she deserves an award and a pat on the back for that. And we decided, hey, let's just spend basically uh, our rent money one day on a nice dinner. And uh, there was this restaurant we had been dreaming about going to, Blue Hill at, uh, at Stone Barns. And um, the chef, this dude named Dan Barber, has won so many awards that uh, when you get there, everything is just amazing. They brought out lettuce. I was like, yo! <laughs> yo, this is how lettuce is supposed to taste. <laughs> I don't know what they're doing back there at church and chill, but yo, this right here? <laughs> everything was absolutely phenomenal, and um, uh, it was worth uh, the price tag uh, for going that day. But here's the thing about going to a restaurant like this. We mentioned this during our Good Friday service. When you go to a restaurant like that where there is a chef obsessed with perfection in every single way, there is no salt and pepper on the table. There is no A1 sauce for you to dip your well-done steak into. There is no ketchup. There is absolutely nothing on the table because here's what the chef is saying, that you don't need anything to enjoy this. As it is presented, you will, it, is, it is absolutely perfect. When Jesus Christ, the spotless lamb of God, is presented to us, and he says, it is finished, it is finished. And there's nothing you and I can do to add to that without, in some ways, subtracting from it by saying, Jesus, what you have done for us on the cross 
is not enough. So I need to be really consistent in my CBR reading. Jesus, what you have done on the cross is not enough, so I need to really be outraged by every single thing that happens in the media. And moralism will lead you down a path of no joy in your life. And I don't want you to hear moralism when I say obligation. Now, hopefully I've offended about half the room. Let me offend the other side of the room just in case um, you guys are feeling too good. Uh, when other people hear the word obligation, you start to get a little anxious and push back a bit, a bit. And I think that might be because you might tend towards something theologians call relativism. Now, relativism is the belief that my faith alone equals justification, and it does not matter what I do. That God just loves me, period, that's it, and nothing I do matters. Now, to a certain degree, I love the confidence uh, that faith alone equals a relationship with God, but what kind of parent would God be? What kind of parent would God be if he didn't care what you did? Now, I love my kids. I talk about them a lot. Oftentimes, when I'm writing a sermon, I try to make sure I'm not putting too many illustrations talking about them because in a lot of ways, I'm obsessed with my family. I love my family deeply. I love my boys more than anything on this planet. And there is nothing they can do to take my love away from them, not even if they became Patriots fans. <laughs> but there's a whole lot of things I want for them. There's a whole lot of time that my wife and I spend investing in their life, correcting their behavior, encouraging them in the right way to do, because what kind of parent would I be if I didn't care what they did? Now, their obedience does not create a relationship with me, but I have so many things in mind for them. I have so many things planned for them that their obedience is required for them to have the life that I want them to have. Same thing is true in Scripture. In Ephesians 2 and 10, right after Paul talks about this is not of yourself so no one can boast, what does he say? He says, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God has prepared ahead of us to do. For we are God's workmanship. You and I are God's creation uh, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works which God has prepared ahead of time for you to do. There are things that God has for you to do. There are things that God has for me to do, and they don't include standing on a stage and just talking. There are things that God has prepared for all of us to do, and man, I don't want us to miss out on any of that, but because we think that um, obligation is not what, uh, what we're intending it to mean. And here's what I know to be true. Uh, the gospel is never opposed to your effort. It is always opposed to you feeling like that has earned you something. The gospel is not opposed to you working hard, it is opposed to you earning. It is opposed to you feeling like your efforts have now created the relationship. The gospel is not opposed to you, to your effort. If it were, then God would have nothing for you to do. So if you lean towards that side of the camp, I want you to kind of open your mind up a little bit to the fact that God might be calling you to live out of a sense of gratitude and uh, follow God in directions that may not be the most comfortable because this is necessary for your growth. The gospel is not that God loves me regardless or that God um, uh, will only love me if I'm good. The gospel is that because God loves me, he will make me good. Because God loves me, he will make me good. Theologians call this sanctification. Uh, if you grew up in church, there were people uh, that threw that word out. And when you hear the word sanctified, what do you think about? Sanctified, Holy Ghost filled, fire baptized, you know, filled with the Holy Ghost. 
uh, and sanctified tended to mean something almost pejorative or something negative, that to be sanctified meant that you were almost standoffish or that you were holier than thou. But sanctification is what Paul is talking about here in verses 12 and 13, about living your life in such a way that you are actively working alongside God to put to death the parts of your body that do not align with God. Here's a great definition of sanctification. Uh, It is a continuing change worked by God in us, freeing us from sinful habits and forming in us Christ-like affections, dispositions, and virtues. I really want to emphasize this word continuous. The growth that God wants you to have in your life will be gradual, painfully gradual at times, but gradual nonetheless. If you do not see results in a day, I don't want you to subscribe to a microwave theology um, that basically thinks that you're going to go from zero to 100 real quick because it doesn't work like that. What we're talking about here is more like a seed that grows. And seeds grow very, very slowly, but gradually. And they start off beneath the surface, and oftentimes you can't see growth at first, but eventually it grows. And what we're talking about here is this continuing, gradual change worked by God in us, freeing us from sinful habits, and simultaneously forming inside of you these Christ-like affections where you start to your affections, the things that you actually want out of life, the things that you are attracted to, the things that, you, that bring you joy and value actually start to change um, dispositions and virtues. The first sign that God is working powerfully in your life is that you uh, have a physical inability to enjoy certain things the same way as you once did. Uh, when I was in college and I was becoming a Christian, I knew that like, something really had happened to me because I just couldn't go along with the things that I had been doing before. It brought with it a dissatisfaction. Now, sanctification is part of the real transformation, and it's a sign that what you and I have is a real saving faith, not just an imitation version of it. Here's what Paul says in verse 11, and these are really sobering and heavy thoughts, so I want you to think about this. He says this, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. Here's what he's saying. The force, the power, the person of God that is so powerful and so strong that he raised Jesus from the dead. If that power lives inside of you, then there will be a change in your life as well. I grew up in a church where people had been there for decades and decades and decades. And there were some people in a church who had as much Christ-likeness in their life as my Rottweiler did. And... We have to ask ourselves a question, this, this question right here. If I say, if I claim to have Christ living on the inside of me, and there is no change, and I'm not talking about instantaneous, is it Jesus that's living on the inside of me? There are people who I know grew up in church, and uh, listen, coming to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than me holding a hammer makes me a carpenter. I would never want you to think that your relationship with God is real and thriving if there is nothing in your life that is showing the fruit of the Holy Spirit's life and activity and vitality inside of you, which is bringing growth and change and maturation in your life. Uh, One of the most sobering scriptures in all of the New Testament is what Jesus says in Matthew 7 and 21. And as I was preparing for today, uh, I was, my heart was just heavy thinking about uh, just everybody that comes to Renaissance and just praying 
that, man, this would not be said among you. This wouldn't be said about you. It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? And here's what Jesus says, then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. They had this appearance of faith. They had the words of faith. They knew what to say. They knew they hung around the right people. But Jesus tells them the, the most sobering words in all of Scripture, that I never knew you, that his spirit was never living inside of them, that there was no, no change actually happening in their life. A few weeks ago when we spoke about what it looks like to place your faith in Jesus, it doesn't take memorizing the entire canon, the entire New Testament, or any of these things. It simply means, Jesus, I'm willing to lay down the direction and control of my life, and I submit to you as my Lord and my Savior. To give up that control, to to invite Jesus into your life, not just to uh, be your advisor, but to be your Savior. And uh, nothing would make me happier, absolutely nothing would make me happier than to if you're questioning where you stand with God, or if you're newer or wherever that is, uh, that, we would, that you would either come down for prayer after and talk to someone or fill out on your connection card for more information on baptism so that we can make sure that in your life there's a real, genuine, saving faith, not just the appearance of one. None of us, when uh, on our own, can, can make anything of ourselves. And I don't want us, I don't want us going decades and years uh, living a lie There's one scripture in the New Testament where Paul tells this entire church, hey, test yourself to see if you're in the faith. And I think that's a sobering challenge for us, that you and I should start to resemble um, godliness in our life. Um, And though it's gradual, it should certainly come. Uh, Before I became an attorney, um, I mean, before I became a a pastor, I was an attorney. And um, uh, what I did, I represented children. I was known as an attorney for children. And uh, I had a whole different types of cases, and one of the types of cases I would get is I would be on a paternity case where the father was questioning the paternity of the child in question, trying to get out of paying child support questions. And there were some times where you would walk into court, you would take one look at the kid, and you look at the father, and you'd be like, come on, bro. Do we need this test? It would be like if Jay-Z tried to deny Blue Ivy. Like, yo, bro, Jigga, come on. Jigga, seriously? You going to deny that? Don't. Please don't. We all know deep down inside that there should be some resemblance in the family. And if there's not, then something might be wrong. In our lives, the scripture is telling us that what the Holy Spirit is trying to do in our lives is to bring a resemblance from us to God. And that you and I participate in this and we show our gratitude and we show our obligation to God by contributing to God to put to death the misdeeds of our flesh. The things in our affections that don't line up with God, the things in our emotions that don't line up with God, the things in our actions that don't line up with God. And this is the requirement. This is the obligation that Scripture is calling us to today. So how do you actually do that? Uh, People have written entire books on that, but I just want to highlight a couple of things. Um, The first thing that you you and I need to know in order to truly develop this and to to really uh, contribute towards our sanctification process is we kill sin based on intentional decisions and actions. You and I kill sin in our lives. We become more like Christ based on intentional decisions and actions. You and I will never accidentally drift towards Christ-likeness in your life. 
you will never accidentally drift in the direction of holiness and, uh, and, and more knowledge and more information and a better prayer life. You will never drift accidentally in that direction. 1 Timothy 4, 7 says it like this, to train yourself in godliness. And I think the apostle uses those words to train yourself because in life, you and I will not always be motivated, which is why we need to be disciplined and take intentional actions. When someone is training, uh, my wife and I ran a half marathon a number of years ago. The last time I'll ever do anything that crazy or stupid. Uh, shout out to all the runners. It's a very brief side note. Pe who likes to run? Why would you? <laughs> have you ever seen the face of someone who's running? They never look like they're having a good time. I don't care what you say, you hate it too. Training requires so much effort, and there's so many times when you're training when the last thing you want to do is to train. Uh, my wife and I used to run on the, on the, alongside the Henry Hudson, and there would be some days in the wintertime where the wind would be so cold and so strong, and it felt like you were running uh, in reverse. It was like, yeah, I, I, how did I go backwards two-tenths of a mile, and I'm already tired? In these moments... Uh, we see what it means to train. Train mean, means to not rely on your emotions or your motivations, but rather on your intentional actions and decisions in pursuit of something. Some of the best things that have happened in my life, if not all of the best things that have happened in my spiritual life, have come as a result of intentional decisions. A couple of weeks ago, I was complaining to my wife something that has been bothering me for years. Um, I've never had a pastor. Um, I've had people who are pastor friends, um, and I have a lot of friends who have really amazing connections with their pastors. Uh, but the, the, the man who was a pastor figure to me passed away about seven years ago. And for years, I would uh, really complain and lament to my wife how, how lonely it is to be a pastor and how I have a lot of pastor friends, but I just needed someone who wouldn't talk to me about strategy or talk to me about problem solving, but would just talk to me about the, the state of my soul. And probably the 19th, 19th time I was complaining about that, my wife said, well, why don't you just reach out to somebody? I said, listen, that's not how this works. That's not how this works. You listen. You don't give me great advice. I didn't come here. And I hate it when she's right, but she was totally 100% right. Um, I reached out to somebody, and he and I meet once a month, and it's been really, really life-giving. Um, I was afraid of rejection uh, and not trying to take that intentional decision. I'll talk to my therapist about that on Wednesday, but the, um, the best thing that's happened in my life most recently has come because I didn't wait for something to organically happen. Some of the couples in here who are the happiest have met not on some fairy book story where they just so happen to be walking on the street and they grazed each other's arms and looked down at each other and they met on coffee and bagel. Coffee means bagel. They met on match.com. They met based on intentional actions that they both said, we're going to pursue this together, and they met each other. And any of those people, ask them do they care that they didn't meet organically. They will tell you how happy they are together, and it didn't matter what brought them to that place. Some of the stuff that God is trying to cultivate in your life will not come organically, which is why God calls us to train in the direction of these things. And here's an interesting thing about intentional decisions. Some of the things that God is requiring from your life, and this is a very sobering reality, they're not just intentional, but it's drastic. It's something that would not make sense to 95% of the people in your life. It's absolutely drastic. 
It's, you know, I don't want to be a Jesus freak and go that hard in this direction. I don't want to push all of my life, all of my chips to the center of the table that far because it's a drastic thing. Jesus uh, tells people in the Gospels that if, you're, if your hand is causing you to sin, cut it off. If your eyes are causing you to sin, take them out. Now, Jesus is by no means advocating for body mutilation. He's speaking about a principle called radical amputation, meaning if there is something getting in the way of your obligation to God, get rid of it. Here's what I know to be true. You will never do that on your own. In order for you to actually live in such a way that you are making the intentional decisions that you need to be making, you need a gospel community behind you to get there. You need a community of people that know you really well, because here's what I know to be true in my own life with all my own personal struggles over the years. Bad things happen to people in isolation. Terrible things happen to people in isolation. And you need gospel community, people who know the real you, people that you have confessed real stuff going on in your life in order to bring out the fruit that God wants you to bring out in your life. Uh, One of the things that I found to be most helpful Um, even in parenting, is coming home and confessing to my wife when I'm really frustrated with one of my boys. Um, And one is really innocent and cute. The other one is cute but not innocent. And sometimes uh, on a walk to, to daycare or the walk somewhere, he just does literally everything he could do to be hard headed. And that's the word I'll use from the stage. Going home and simply telling my wife, hey, I'm super frustrated with Jameson. If I discipline him now, it's not going to be for his discipline. It's going to be out of my anger. So, hey, I need you to keep me accountable that I'm not too harsh with him because I'm really angry. I'm really upset. And just me telling her that and knowing that she, I have eyes looking at me prevent me from doing something that would unnecessarily harm him or discipline him too harshly just because I'm angry at him. And here's what I know to be true in your life. Bad things happen to people in isolation. You need gospel community. Jackie Hill Perry says it like this, uh, and I think these are the four pillars of gospel community. Uh, they make friends that make sin look bad, God look big, grace look tangible, and the gospel look true. Gospel community is when you have people in your life that make sin look bad, God look big, grace look tangible, and the gospel look true. I don't um, take for granted how amazingly cool Renaissance is and how easy to know a lot of people are, but listen, I would not, I would not make relationships, w- deeply invested relationships with people who can't push me in these directions. I don't care how much we have in common or don't have in common. If, I did, if they were able to meet these things, I would invest in that, in that friendship or that relationship, even if we didn't have a lot in common uh, in terms of our life and background. And be also really careful, some of the people are really good at number one. They hold a hammer to the back of your head, and anytime you mess up, they'll be ready to crack you in the skull with it. Gospel community is not just people pointing out your faults. It's not just people telling you how bad you are. It is people that make the grace of God look tangible. And if you struggle with your prayer life, if you wander mentally a hundred times in your prayers, then that's 100 opportunities to come back to the arms of a loving and gracious Savior who welcomes us to pray with him and to pray to him with confidence and boldness. And gospel community is necessary uh, because there's, a, there's an aspect of our growth that is necessary that you and I, uh, as, as James says, confesses our sins one to another so that we could be healed. 
There's something powerful about telling other people what's going on in our life. It has the power and the effect of dragging it into the light. And sin, like I know, thrives and flourishes in darkness, but it is killed by the light. And we need friends that make sin look bad, God look big, grace look tangible, and the gospel look true. You and I need accountability not because we're weak, but because we're human. You needing accountability and asking someone intentionally, and maybe the intentional decision you need to make is go up to somebody who you know, but maybe not know that well, and say, hey, could we grab breakfast or coffee, and you know, could we just chop it up and, and, and dig a little deeper? If you don't have anybody like that, uh, and there are things in your life that you'd want to uh, maybe confess, here's a, a great first step. If you don't know anybody at this church and you're brand new, email grace at Renaissance NYC, and one of our deacons or pastors will reach out to you and put you in, uh, point you in the right direction of getting that gospel community. So we need intentional actions. We need real uh, gospel community of people who can speak into our lives. And the last thing that I think we desperately need is we need to get full on the gospel. We need to get full on the gospel. And here's what I know to be true. Bad decisions happen on an empty stomach. So many of my worst decisions have happened on empty stomach. Uh, years ago, I was uh, kind of running through my Saturday to-do list, and you know, going food shopping was one of the things on my list, and um, I got kind of tied around, and I didn't eat lunch, so I go to Costco on an empty stomach. Uh, FYI, that's a terrible decision. Uh, the samples were amazing. I'm, I bought like 19 samples, like, yo, this beef stroganaut is incredible. Um, and here's what I did. I bought a box of peaches, and here's the crazy thing about that. I'm allergic to peaches. I could eat them cooked, so I was like, yo, I'm about to make peach cobbler. I'm about to have like a little roasted peach and arugula salad. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? I'm about to just peach this joint all the way up. And those peaches sat in the box and rotted because I never did anything with them. And I wasted money and I made a really bad decision because I was on an empty stomach. So much of our lives are negatively impacted, not because you're weak, not because there's something wrong with you, not because you don't have a genuine faith. It's because you have a, you're living life on E. You're claiming that you know your gas tank, and I know how this car operates, but you're living your life on E, and you're wondering why there's nothing that you can do to seemingly make progress in your life. David, in one of the Psalms, says it like this, Lord, your word have I hid in my heart so that I might not sin against you. Your word have I smuggled. Your word have I jammed deep down inside my heart so that I would not sin against you. Uh, Psalm 107.9 says, For he has satisfied the thirsty and filled the hungry with good things. Do you know it's required for you to be filled with all that God wants for you? It's only that you come to God saying, God, I'm thirsty, or God, I'm hungry. I want us to pray, and I want us to do something that's a little awkward for a little bit. I want to just take 30 seconds of silence, and I want you to pray for the Holy Spirit to fill you with God's love, God's affirmation, God's care for you, how much God notices you, how much God is valuing you as more than the two sparrows, and if he cares about them and he makes sure that they're fed, then you have everything you need. Let's take some time in silence right now.
Father, you know all the ways that I feel so mediocre and insignificant, like I'm just another pawn on the chessboard, that my life doesn't matter, that you don't notice me, that I'm not noticing life, and you know all the ways that I'm so tempted to go after things and ways about life to feel more significant. God, fill me with the knowledge and the overwhelming sensation that I am loved and known and noticed and seen and cared about. God, that I don't have to be seen as significant in other people's eyes because you deem me significant. Father, you know the places where people are searching for love in all the wrong places because we don't have the love from you. So we feel that we have to be so impressive in everything that we do. We have to live a certain persona because we're so insecure. Father, would you fill us with your Holy Spirit to receive your love? Father, you know the ways that we're trying to earn your love and tap dance and cross all the T's and dot all the I's. And God, because we're not receiving the love of Jesus Christ for us on the cross. And as a result, God, we keep our hands closed-fisted. We restrict what we're allowing you to have in our lives. But Lord, help us to open up our fists, and receive from you everything that you would have for us to have. God, we are withholding nothing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.